0: We are continuing in our series on uh, This Is Our Story, and this week we are covering Paul, the man. So um, this is actually a pretty big topic. He's a significant figure uh, in the New Testament. He's all the more intriguing because uh, he did not know Jesus during his lifetime like the disciples did, um, some of whom went on to write uh, books of the Bible. Um, Paul called himself uh, late to the Jesus party, as he describes himself as somebody born out of the right timing of things for, in terms of his apostolic calling. <clears throat> and yet, this man who didn't know Jesus during his own lifetime considers himself uh, out of sequence uh, in the, the story of Jesus is often considered by many people to be the founder of Christianity. And part of why we tend to talk about him that way is because he wrote so much that we've recorded over time. So, uh, about a quarter of the New Testament is actually written by Paul. If you think about the New Testament as three sections, uh, largely there, like one section is the Gospel in Acts. One section is Paul's letters that are ordered basically from the longest to shortest. And then the third section is what's called general letters because they're not really written to a specific church. They're kind of written to a broad group of churches. So in those three sections, Paul gets one all to himself because he wrote so much compared to what everybody else was writing. And so you can end up actually saying that there is we have a lot of data on the Apostle Paul what he cared about, what he didn't care about, what he was like. Uh, And we could cover this from so many angles. In fact, uh, it can be so daunting to think of all of the different angles that you can uh, cover a person, like a historical figure, that uh, maybe there are some different ways that we can think about how, how in a half hour can you do justice To uh, telling the story of a person. The approach that I'm going to take is one that Hollywood's been taking these days, which is if you want to do a biopic, you don't tell the person's full story. That's just too much, too much to try to cram into one movie. Instead, the the cool strategy these days is you take a snapshot or snapshots of that person's life, and you use these uh, individual stories as kind of lenses to highlight what really matters to you about that person. Stories kind of like thesis statements about uh, about that person. So I love uh, Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the screenplay for the Steve Jobs movie. He tried this approach, especially because when he decided to take on the, the task of doing a movie about Steve Jobs, one of the criticisms up front was that many people have tried it and they have failed for it to do well. How on earth do you think you can, uh, you can make it work? And the strategy that he took was they're only going to tell three stories of Steve Jobs' life. Three different snapshots pulled at different times and to use those snapshots to to flesh out who that man was. Uh, also, uh, keeping in, in, uh, lockstep with another cool trend in Hollywood these days is to not tell stories in chronological order. So I'm not going to do that either. So we're going to cover three scenes from the Apostles Paul's life. They will not be in chronological order. Um, but don't worry, you'll be able to follow along. We, we will not lose anybody in the process, but you'll see why I've ordered them in the way that I have as we go through this because there there is a focus in uh, in the three stories that i 've chosen um, part of the the big issue with telling a story of Paul is trying to kind of even um deal with preconceptions that people have about what Paul's story is like uh, and what it isn't. A typical story that you all might know about Paul, like the way that you might frame it to people, whether you have any kind of religious background or not, you might be aware of some of this basic telling of it. One is that um, you first meet Paul when he's called Saul. He's a Jewish leader who is persecuting the early followers of Jesus uh, he is so zealous for uh, Israel's God that he, fo- like, as uh, the followers of Jesus start leaving Jerusalem, he follows them out of town and is on a mission to bring them to justice and possibly have them executed. Then, on his way, going to one of these towns, um, looking for followers of Jesus um, to bring to justice, he uh, experiences, he encounters the risen Jesus uh, on his way. And at that point, he is converted to Christianity from Judaism. He changes his name from Saul to Paul, and then he goes around traveling the world preaching to Gentiles about the good news that you no longer have to try to earn your salvation like the Jews do and like he thought in the past. The problem with that story that I just told is that that's mostly not true. That's mostly uncharacteristic of what Paul's life is about. So if the story that I told sounds very familiar and you're like, right, that's, that's the story of Paul that I would tell, bear with me. I think that we're going we're gonna to highlight some things that will help you kind of flesh out a better way of telling Paul's story. Um, because when we get Paul's story wrong, we tend to get Things about our own story wrong. And that can have some pretty serious consequences of how we understand Jesus ourselves and how we communicate Jesus to others. So we kind of operate from the, the premise that so much changed for Paul when uh, he started following Jesus that it raises the question of what didn't change. So let's first figure out, let's, get it, let's wrap our heads around what didn't change for Paul when he began believing and following Jesus. So the first scene that we're going to use to try to understand what didn't change for Paul is a scene in Jerusalem. So this scene, uh, we will actually, all three scenes, will use the book of Acts, which the latter part of Acts kind of chronicles the, uh, the work that Paul does for Jesus. And uh, we'll be getting snapshots from, from different parts of Acts. So this first scene in Jerusalem that we'll go through occurs a little later in Paul's life. He's been following Jesus for several years. And uh, before this scene begins, he has just returned from one of his trips around the Mediterranean, where he's been planting communities of followers of Jesus among Gentiles. And now he's back home to the Jerusalem area. He's talking with the Jerusalem leaders and telling them about all of the great belief in God that Gentiles are engaging in because of Paul's work uh, around the Mediterranean. So this raises questions for the Jewish leadership when Paul returns, because while in theory they're very excited to hear that many Gentiles are turning to Israel's God, the question that comes up is, wait a second, are you asking these Gentiles to, you know, become Jews if they're going to be following Israel's God? Are you practicing your Judaism when you're with these Gentiles out there? Are you a Jew anymore? What's going on? We've heard a lot of things. We've got to set the record straight. That's the reception that he gets when he returns. So here's how Acts describes this scene. So you, here it starts. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed. So this is the Jewish leaders talking to Paul. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So this raises this challenge, right? They, they are not sure whether Paul is actually staying true to the law that he always had been faithful to in the past. So they say, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. So this is the proposal that the Jewish leaders offer Paul to prove that he is as Jewish as he used to be. So he sa- uh, they say, there are four men with us who have made a vow. This is a Jewish ritual vow that they had taken. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Again, this is part of the ritual vow that they had taken. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living. In obedience to the law, so this is what they're asking him to do. Hey, can you do this with these men who are who are um, uh, engaged in this vow? So, what do you think? Paul's response to them is. The way we often tell Paul's story of somebody who once he converted to Christianity and left Judaism behind, you would think that Paul's response would be, no way, I'm done with the law. I'm free from its burdens, and you are too, so let's stop doing these purification rituals, and nobody needs to take any more vows anymore or anything like that. That is often what we think Paul would say in this situation. But here's what he does. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. He does exactly what the Jewish leaders ask him to do. He, not only does he do that, implicit in this discussion is Paul offering a sacrifice in the temple, which I know makes a lot of Christians nervous because we like to think of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, the last sacrifice that you will ever need. So you never need to make any sacrifices again. And we like to imagine that all of those Jewish followers of Jesus, once they began following Jesus, that they completely stopped doing any of those things. Clearly, that didn't happen. Paul continues to offer ritual sacrifices when he's in town. In fact, this uh, th- this behavior of Paul's can sometimes be so disconcerting to Christians that many interpreters throughout history have said that Paul was wrong to have done this, to have actually gone ahead and offered this ritual sacrifice. They would say, chalk it up to a learning curve for the early Jesus community, realizing slowly over time just how little of the law they actually needed to deal with. That's what many interpreters have said to try to wrap their minds around the fact that Paul is observing this Jewish ritual, knowing very well that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that summed up his faith in Israel's God. But really, it's not just this incident that speaks to Paul's ongoing Jewishness. Paul was a Jew. This is the big point that we need to make for this first scene. And he still is. Wherever he is resting with the Lord, he was a Jew to the very end. He could not uncircumcise himself if he wanted to. Wherever he is, that's that's how he's rolling. So the Apostle Paul would have had a pretty decent checklist. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, the one that follows Jesus, The Apostle Paul worshipped in synagogues and observed the Sabbath. This is something he repeatedly does throughout the book of Acts, as if Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to make you remember that Paul does these things all the time. Not only that, Paul, being a good Jew, came home for the holidays. There are uh, examples of him going out of his way to make sure he can be in town to celebrate uh, the festival holidays uh, in, in the stories in the New Testament. He continued to identify as a Pharisee. There are multiple times when Paul refers to his Pharisee ness in present tense. It's not something he gave up when he started following Jesus. I think this is especially important because we often tend to think of Pharisee in our minds as those legalistic, rule-following people who are just burdened with trying to earn their salvation and never actually being able to do it perfectly and being racked with guilt and self-righteousness in the process. That clearly can't have been how Paul thought of himself as a Pharisee because he clearly didn't see that as an identity that he had to give up when he started following Jesus. Not only that, Paul himself kept Jewish ritual vows even after he started following Jesus. uh, We read this uh, example of the four men that Paul was with who had kept a vow and shaved their heads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, The book of Acts chronicles a time where Paul himself undergoes that vow as well. So that's Paul. That's him checking all the boxes to be able to demonstrate that before Jesus, after Jesus, he stays Jewish. We tend to think of Paul as somebody who made this dramatic conversion break from his past where somebody is, you know, messaging him. Hey, Saul, how you doing? New phone. Who this? Like, uh, I'm not Saul anymore. You know, that's it's over. And like cutting ties with his previous community. That's obviously not how it happened you know, we, we imagine this implicit dialogue, right? It would be, uh, it'd be uh, conveyed as like, you know, I heard you converted to Christianity. Paul would say, I wouldn't put it that way. Uh, are you, and you even changed your name. Not, not really. Uh, are you so glad you're not under that burdensome law anymore, always trying to earn God's favor? Uh, I, was, I was never doing that. That's, that is how it would go for Paul in this discussion. When we distance Paul From his Jewish identity, we end up with that beautiful white Jesus, the enemy of Jews, as historically considered, with his straight. Uh, flowing brown hair and his penetrating blue eyes that can see into your soul. It's actually his blue eyes that allow him to see into your soul. It doesn't come from God. It's the blue eyes themselves. So powerful that, that they can do that. And we're not doing this on purpose, right? When I asked you to close your eyes and picture Jesus and you think of a white person, you didn't choose to do it that way. This is something that's just saturated in the culture around us. We unwittingly embrace that kind of Jesus when we accept stories like this about Paul, where somebody as somebody who broke from his Jewish identity when he started following Jesus, as if those things were mutually exclusive, or as if Paul became uh, a follower of Jesus despite his Judaism. No, Paul became a follower of Jesus because of his Judaism. That's something that we need to retain in the story that we actually tell. There are so many things about uh, American or Western Christianity that end up being white by default. Uh, things like even the worship songs we sing, the way we format sermons, the way that I'm presenting things right now, the way this room is set up. All of that stuff is stuff you didn't necessarily think very carefully about why we do it the way that we do it, but here we are. And when we lose... When we lose the connection to the ancient Near Eastern Palestinian Jewish context of where Paul was coming from. It becomes so much easier to think that our culture is Jesus' culture, and that's the one that they must have practiced back then. But it's not. Almost the entire New Testament, possibly all of it, uh, was written by Jews. So when you read and try to interpret Paul and Paul's letters you try to understand what makes him tick what does he love why does he do what he do why does he hate what he hates remember from the beginning to the end before and after Jesus that Paul was a Jew that never changed now if you're following with me so far then you should rightfully be confused because you can ask if Paul was such a good Jew even after he followed uh, started following Jesus then why is the latter part of his life defined by conflicts with the Jewish leaders? What was he doing that was causing so much trouble with his own brothers and sisters in Israel um, that he wasn't doing before he started following Jesus? And that's that's a great question. That's exactly the right question to ask. So we do need to figure out what it is that Paul's problem was with uh, the Jewish leaders in his day, and what their problem with him would have been. To answer that question, we should go to scene two, and that is in Damascus or on the way to Damascus. So, in this scene, this is the one that many of you will probably recognize, even if you're not too familiar with Bible stories. Because, you know, this language of uh, a, you had a Damascus Road experience. That's like language that we use to describe these dramatic conversions where you all of a sudden realize that the that where your life was headed was wrong, and you turn, uh, you do a, a 180. So in this scene, to set it up, <clears throat> this is the scene that I described earlier, where part of the story where... Uh, Saul is um, systematically trying to round up followers of Jesus out of his zeal for following Israel's God. And in this process, he's heading to Damascus. And uh, when he's outside of town, he encounters the risen Jesus. He has an experience with him on the road, literally blows him back. He falls back. And in this, dis, uh, in, in this vision, um, here's how it's described. So the book of Acts actually... Retells this story three times. The first time it's told in third person as just a sta- straightforward narrative. This is like this is what Paul's doing. The other two times that this story is told in the Book of Acts, it's told from Paul's first person perspective, and he's telling the story to a leader who he has to uh, plead his case to uh, because he's brought, been brought up on charges of insurrection. So the the uh, quote that I'm going to draw from here is from one of his own Paul's own personal retellings. Of that story. So, this is Paul describing what happened to him on that road. He says, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. In other words, it's like kicking against spears or sharp objects. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So we're trying to answer that question, given that Paul didn't give up his Judaism when he started following Jesus. What did change for him? And uh, Pastor Danielle talked about last week how encountering the crucified and risen Jesus for Paul meant that it changed everything. So I want to flesh that out and be more precise for what it did change. Paul encountered the risen Jesus, and it caused him to rewrite his own story. To to be able to appreciate just how much rewriting Paul had to do, it would help to know the kinds of stories that people like Paul were writing for themselves in Jesus's day. Uh, So this is, uh, this is an example of how to think through uh, maybe the expectations that people like Paul and other Jews in the first century, especially the ones who ran in Jesus' circle, would have thought of the Messiah. So we often, as Christians who possibly have believed in Jesus for years and years, uh, even since we were babies— uh, we kind of have been told this this approach of like Jesus uh, fulfilled so many prophecies in the Old Testament as if there was a checklist that existed at that time and Jesus checked all those boxes. Some of those check uh, uh, boxes that we would want to check in the, in the way we normally tell these stories to each other is that the baby Jesus had to live in Egypt for a while and be called out of it, thus fulfilling the scripture, out of Egypt I called my son. Baby Jesus had to have been conceived of a virgin. Uh, baby Jesus had to have uh, survived uh, genocide in the first couple of years that he was alive. The problem with using that checklist is that checklist did not exist in the first century. There were no Jews who were sitting around thinking that when the Messiah comes, he has to satisfy those. When New Testament writers say, thus Jesus fulfilled, They often don't mean it in the sense of an Old Testament prophet predicting the future, saying that, you know, someday there'll be a Messiah, he'll do X, Y, and Z. It's more like they're doing this retroactive storytelling where they're saying, now that I've encountered the risen Jesus, it brings new meaning to this old story that I heard the prophets say. It's one of those things that comes after the fact. That's, that's usually like the checklists that we have in our minds of like what, what the Messiah had to fulfill. That's usually what we mean. Here's a real checklist. This is a helpful to think of like actual checklists that uh, a Jewish person might have had in first century Palestine for what they were hoping the Messiah would accomplish. First one, Avengers Assemble. This is the idea that when the Messiah came, you could gather together, gather together an army of faithful Jews who would be able and willing to fight on behalf of of God and overthrow whatever ruler that they had at the time. So, a related part of that was to humiliate Caesar. Caesar had been mocking Israel's God for centuries with their with um, their complete disregard for Jewish laws, and uh, there was this this narrative that existed in those days that when the Messiah comes, Caesar will learn his rightful place in the story of God. He will be brought down low and God's people will be elevated. Related to that, when you humiliate Caesar, you overthrow the Roman Empire and you establish Israel as a free people, sovereign to themselves. In the process, part of their idea was that doing so would put Israel's God on the map. So it's not just a victory for Israel that occurs in Jerusalem. It's something that the whole world would know about. And then that Messiah, after having accomplished this, would sit on God's throne like a boss. That's where all these images of, you know, Jesus uh, and the Messiah being like a King David figure. The idea was when the Messiah comes back, he'll be like King David, but even greater. They will be in charge and, they're, and they will have their throne established for centuries to come. And there will never be a day again where a foreign power will come and remove that king off of his throne. And then bonus points would be if that Messiah could also... Uh, sit as the high priest like a boss too. Part of why I listed as bonus points is actually just to give you a reminder, there's actually no hard checklist that existed at the time for what Jews hoped the Messiah would be. Different groups had different expectations and different hopes, and depending on the guy who you thought could be a contender, you kind of adjusted the list uh, to make it fit around that person. Jesus wasn't the only person around his time claiming to be the Messiah, to be somebody who was going to accomplish these things for Israel. The one big difference that historically pans out is of all of those people who claim to be the Messiah, we only talk about one 2,000 years later. And for Paul, the reason that this Messiah, among other Messiahs, that this one is worth talking about is because when he encountered Jesus on that road, that was when he realized Jesus was the real deal. That Jesus had won over evil, in a way that no other Messiah had ever done or ever will. He had encountered something special. You could, one could look at Jesus's life, as the disciples did right after Jesus died, and think Jesus did not do any of these things. By all of the standards of the hopes of many Israelites in those days, Jesus was a failure, But when Paul encountered the risen Jesus, it caused him to rewrite the story and to rewrite what he thought the Messiah was supposed to be all along. Here's how Paul describes the way he envisions Jesus and Jesus' followers overcoming evil. It's in stark, ironic contrast to the way many people in his day, Jew and Gentile, would have thought kings overcome their enemies. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul and other New Testament writers, the weapons they imagine working with are words of truth breathed by the Spirit. They are thoughts that have the ability, once they take hold in your mind, to topple empires. In Colossians, Paul says it uh, in a similar way. He says, You were buried with him through baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them in a triumphal parade. Paul wants you to imagine Jesus's resurrection as one that humiliates Caesar. In what way in those days would somebody have thought Jesus's resurrection would humiliate Caesar? But you know what? For Paul, the answer is obvious. Once he encountered the risen Jesus, he knew that God was far bigger and far more powerful than Caesar. Caesar's come and go. Caesar's live and die. But Jesus is here forever. That is what Paul realized. That's why when Paul imagines the, uh, the humiliation that evil experiences at the hands of Jesus, it hinges on the fact that Jesus was alive and that Jesus still is alive to this day. There is... Uh, uh, a great way that captures this irony that uh, con- consistent with our theme uh, of movies. Although please don't take what I'm about to say as any endorsement that you should watch the movie kill bill. So this was directed by Quentin Tarantino, not for everybody, uh, for those who have uh, eyes that can handle watch, otherwise don't. But, uh, I think this, this highlights the irony that often comes with seeking to, uh, you know, overthrow evil and pursuing vengeance through vengeant means. Um, in the story, Kill Bill, the way Quentin Tarantino sets it up is so this, uh, this woman who's the protagonist, she is uh, an assassin who is betrayed by her group of assassins and left for dead um, at her wedding altar. And um, she actually eventually comes to and she embarks on this mission to seek revenge on her fellow assassins who tried to murder her. And uh, embarking on this journey of revenge, she uh, seeks out the one person on the planet who can create a sword for her that would be fit for her to use as a weapon to seek revenge on her enemies. And this, uh, this sword maker had actually gotten out of the game uh, of making swords um, during, the, you know, during the time that, that the protagonist was, was uh, out of commission. She has to persuade him to come out of retirement to make this sword. And in doing so, he, makes, he uh, gives her a warning before she embarks on this journey that I think is very true and meaningful for how we want to think about the role that violence and vengeance can play and how we think we can accomplish God's goals on this planet. This is what that sword maker says. Revenge is never a straight line. It's a forest. And like a forest, it's easy to lose your way, to get lost, to forget where you came in. I think the Apostle Paul would agree. And I think that one of the biggest realizations that he had when he encountered the risen Jesus is that the story he thought he was a part of for the people of Israel was going in the wrong direction. Hunting down followers of Jesus was not going to be the way to do God's will. In fact, Jesus was calling him to fight with an opposite set of weapons altogether. This is what Paul will later on uh, say in his letter to uh, the church in Rome. Bless those who persecute you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. Where do you think he got that from? That is somebody who is empowered by Jesus to offer insights on how it is that Caesars and all the evil forces in this world will be overcome. So when you look at this checklist, I think now thinking through how Paul rewrote his own story in light of Jesus, the Messiah, it's actually helpful to look at it not so much as Jesus failed to do all of these things, is that he subverted all of these things. Jesus still has an army. Their weapons are not swords. Their weapons are truth and words that we speak Caesar will absolutely, has been, and will continue to be humiliated. We're not afraid of people who are in power because we know ultimately who's really in power. Israel's God has been put on the map. The, Paul and other uh, New Testament writers and other disciples envisioned a day in which Jesus would be known throughout the whole world. And Jesus, from the God of Israel, the Messiah from Nazareth, is known throughout the whole world. And Jesus does sit on God's throne like a boss. And the way other New Testament writers reflect on that too is that he also sits as the true high priest, the one who made an ultimate sacrifice so that we don't have to worry about where we stand with God anymore. Now, what happened to Paul when he encountered Jesus didn't only cause him to rewrite his story leading up to that point. It caused him to rewrite where he thought his future was going. So to set up this last scene that we're going to talk about, now this is, um, this is a time when Paul returned to Jerusalem from yet another one of his trips around the Mediterranean where um, he was establishing communities of Gentiles who were following Jesus. And in this case, the Jewish rulers charged him of insurrection and they handed him over to the Roman authorities. In this case, Paul asserts his innocence where he says he's got nothing against Judaism or the Jewish people, which, given the first scene that we talked about, makes sense. He appeals to Caesar um, for Caesar to to hear him out. And so this is what the Roman governor who's hearing Paul's appeal says. After Governor Festus had conferred with, with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. The rest of the book of Acts is really the story of how Paul is going to ultimately head over to Rome, and his case will be heard by the Roman rulers of that day. You see in Acts, as the narrative unfolds, that Paul is willing to go wherever it takes, wherever God calls him to go. Time and again, Acts frames Paul as a man who followed the Spirit to wherever. Now, we often think of following the Spirit to wherever, to bold places, as something like uh, going out to foreign places and preaching the good news to people there. And of course, that's obviously part of what Paul did in his life. But the Holy Spirit doesn't call us just to go to faraway places. It also causes us to go to faraway places within our own communities, to go deep inside and restructure the way our communities work because, from insight from the Holy Spirit. This is an insight that Paul got from the Holy Spirit that didn't ha- uh, make him have to go far away to realize the impact that would, it would have on God's people. In his letter to the church in Galatia, he says, "...there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." This statement is profoundly radical for the context in which Paul wrote that in. We already know from these previous scenes just how important it was for Jews and Gentiles to get along to be a part of God's family. Here's how Paul describes it later in the letter. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor nor uncircumcision has any value. In other words, neither being Jewish nor being Gentile has inherent uh, any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. After Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus, he came to the realization that moving forward to be in God's family, you will no longer be able to appeal to any membership badges like circumcision or whether you keep kosher or not, or what holidays you celebrate or anything like that. Moving forward, it will be your faith in Jesus litmus tested by how you express that with love. That's what it takes to be in, Paul's, uh, in God's family, regardless of your ethnic background. About slaves are free, uh, this is what Paul says, actually, to uh, he writes a letter, actually, to a slave owner. Um, and uh, the reason that he's provoked to write this letter is that the uh, slave owner has a slave who ran away from, from that slave, which was a punishable offense back in that world. And that slave who ran away found Paul in his journey of running away from that slave master. And he encountered Paul and he came to believe in Jesus. And now Paul is tasked with writing a letter to that slave owner about the slave named Onesimus that he encountered on his journey. So he's writing this letter uh, to the slave owner named Philemon. Here's what he tells Philemon. Maybe this is the reason that Onesimus was separated you from a while so that you may so that you may have him, have him back forever no longer as a slave but more than a slave that is as a dearly beloved brother. This is huge for the time and place that it was written in. Here is Paul saying, "Hey, I know that the Greco-Roman world has these sharp hierarchies. Slave and slave owner are on two different levels, completely permanent, irrevocably distant. But you know, if that person is in Jesus, we don't care about status like that. I really, really hope, this is what he's telling Philemon, I really hope that that status of slave and slave owner won't be so important to you either. Similarly, too, for Paul to say there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Um, here's how Paul talks about some of the women in his life. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. This is what he tells the church in, in Rome. So this is him uh, praising a woman who has leadership position in the Jesus community, which would have stood out at that time. Uh, Later on in that same letter, he says, say hello to Andronicus and Junia, Junia being a woman, Uh, my relatives and my fellow prisoners. They are prominent among the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Paul also says uh, in a different letter, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, he's referring to you, Euodia and Syntyche, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is him describing Euodia and Syntyche, two women, as his fellow evangelists or preachers. That's who they would have been, leaders in their churches in those days. Phoebe Junia, Yoria, Syntyche, if you want to know what Paul thought about women, I would say, look at how he talks about them. Look at the roles that, that he uh, saw them have in the early Jesus community. This, I bring these up because it often ends up in these discussions about Paul. There are there are a lot of people who embrace this critical perspective of Jesus on one side as this really cool, socially liberal, liberator uh, guy who overthrew all the social hierarchies of the day, um, who went around teaching peace and love for everybody. And Paul is a guy who was all about rules, who was a conservative and curmudgeon, who was sexist and maintained those hierarchies for the. People who believe in that dichotomy between Paul and Jesus, I would encourage you, reread Paul. Rethink where you think his story is headed. You know, Paul's story, the story of radical transformation of our community itself, that is our story too. You know, like Paul, we never walked with Jesus or knew him when he was on earth. And yet those of us who believe in Jesus believe we've encountered him in such a way that it causes us to reevaluate where we thought our stories were headed. Have you ever had something happen in your life where from that point on, you could not interpret everything that happened to you before then in any other lens other than in light of that thing that just happened to you? That's what happened to Paul. He would, it would be like him saying, I can't tell my story in any other way moving forward. And like Paul, I want to be open to the spirit wherever it takes us. I want to be open to the possibility, like Paul, that I'm wrong, that I've put God in boxes that God wants to break out of, and that God's love is bigger and better and more effective than I could have imagined. Bless those who persecute you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. Like Paul, I wouldn't have come up with that stuff on my own. If you ask me how we're going to overthrow evil in this world, I probably would have taken the approach that Paul thought was the right one before he encountered the risen Jesus. But thank God for Jesus and for turning those stories around. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for revealing Jesus, not only to the Apostle Paul, but also to us. Please always give us fresh encounters with the risen Lord. Help us to dive into Paul's own story and to understand how our story fits into the bigger story you're trying to tell. God, bless us. Forgive us when we fall short. Help us to think the way you think, to love the way you love, to fight the way you fight. And God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in all its beautiful love and peace. In Jesus' name we pray.